welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. Next up on the ABCA Podcast Hall of Fame series is longtime Southern University coach Roger Kador. Coach Kador built the Southern program from no stadium and no equipment to one of the best programs in the nation. He's made a lasting impact on the game of baseball at Southern University and with the MLB diversity program. He retired from Southern with 913 wins and 14 conference championships. Over the course of 33 years, Coach Kador's Jaguar program had 11 NCAA regional appearances, two HBCU national championships, and 62 players drafted, including 2003 Golden Spikes Award winner Ricky Weeks. In the early 2000s, he started the Urban Baseball Invitational at the Urban Youth Academy in Compton, which is now called the Andre Dawson Classic. Coach Kador is also a 2018 SWAC Hall of Fame and 2019 Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame inductee. Let's welcome Coach Kador to the podcast. Here with uh, Roger Kador, a longtime coach at Southern U. Coach Kador, thanks for coming on with me. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you just talk about your path as a player in the game and then your path as a coach in the game of baseball? Well, you know, uh, it started many moons ago. You weren't born yet, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I started, you know, playing Sandlot baseball at the age of 15 years old. And back in the days, in the 60s, the, I was playing with people like in their late 20s and 30 years old. And they taught me how to play the game. Well, fast forward then, then when I started in playing in school, I was just a, I was a sophomore when some of my former teammates in basketball uh, convinced me we should go out for the baseball team. And that was the best move I made in my life because I was playing basketball, being the tallest kid in a very small town. You're thinking you're more than what you really are. So I ended up playing, going out for baseball, making a team and started doing well thinking I was fast forward going to get a scholarship in baseball to go to college. That scholarship never came, so I had to end up taking a basketball scholarship. But the athletic director at the school knew who I was. And he told me, he said, the first year you can play baseball, but you have to play basketball after that. So he allowed me to play baseball the first year, and then I had to play basketball. Fast forward, and by the time I got to be a junior, I got to be pretty good in baseball. And then as a senior, got drafted in the 10th round by the Atlanta Braves in 1973. And then I played pro ball for five years and uh, started coaching basketball as an assistant in 1980. Even though it says in my bio, I might have started in other time. But, you know, this was just volunteer stuff. So... In 80, I started coach basketball for four years as an assistant, then took over in August of 84 as the baseball coach at Southern until 2017. Do you think we miss a little bit of the dual college athlete 
you know, in your generation, there was a lot, and I was fortunate to to coach some some dual sport guys at, at Western Illinois. Do you think we missed that part of it now? Uh, to listen, it's did. You know, there were three people when I was in uh, college: Harold Carmichael, the great wide receiver with Philadelphia Eagles, and I played basketball together. Rodney Milburn, who was an Olympic gold medalist in track and field, he played football and ran track. And I think we were all in school together during that era. So it was it was a normality for people to play more than one sport. Nowadays, because they fire football coaches and basketball coaches so frequent, they sign a good kid. They won't let that happen. During my year at Southern, it might have, I think, one kid, one kid was allowed, a football kid, uh, was a wide receiver and a very smart kid, a three seven grade point average. And the coach allowed him to play, say, it's okay if he can go play. He's smart, he's gonna understand. Africa Odd was his name. And the kid gets drafted in the fifth round in baseball. You know, so but that never happened again. That would maybe talk about it, but it's not gonna happen very much. Uh the, the last guy I remember, Chad Jones at LSU who was a great defensive back and would have been a great pitcher, but he got hurt in a car accident. So he was the last one that really was that kind of athlete that I remember. I'm sure somebody else somewhere, but uh, those are the uh, inst- instances I remember. Well, I think about Dave Winfield. He's the first guy that, that comes to mind, and he played football, basketball, and, and baseball at Minnesota. Oh, the big Dave Winfield. Big yeah. Dave Winfield. Um, yeah. that, that he's always the one that I think about just um, how hard it must have been for him. Um, well, you'll be surprised. It's not that hard. <laughs> I, my guys at Western, I had two of them, Steve McShane and Justin Fitzpatrick. And Justin's actually on the football staff at, at Western now. I, they loved it, and they were both great students, and they were great for us. And, yeah, the timing um, is interesting. You don't see them in the fall at all, but – I, I would go back and do it again um, with both those guys. They're wonderful people, and I and I loved having them around, and they were great for our program. I think he's good for the university, too. Yes. Because, you know, in the generation of money shortfall, that helped us a lesser sport who may not have a scholarship to give. Exactly. To give a, a really good athlete, you know what I'm saying? Like yes. baseball, like Carrick and King can't dish out a full scholarship. You got yes. it? Yep. He had that 25% and making and trying to make it work. So it really helps out a lot. But coaches, uh, the situation with firing, losing job have made coaches selfish. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah, well, money changes everything. Changes everything. They're saying, if I'm going to get fired, I'm not going to lose my player. I want him every minute. Exactly. Rather than let somebody have. So, and I understand it. I don't agree with it, but I understand it. You know, as a young coach, you're navigating the the coaching profession. Who were some of your mentors coming up when you were a young coach? I really didn't, you know, admire a lot of people, to be honest with you, when I say, if I had to say, when I looked at Tommy Lasorda for sure. I love something about Tommy Lasorda because he made the game fun. You see what I'm saying? He made the game fun. And people like 
uh, you know, like Earl Weaver, not necessarily because he didn't make the game fun, in my opinion. He argued a lot. I don't want that kind of stuff. You know what I'm saying? But Lasorda made it fun, and I always looked up to him in that respect. But other than that, I really didn't look up to a lot of people because I wanted to have my own brain. What about coaches in the Braves organization? Any, any guys that stick out in the Braves organization for you? Uh, at the time, Tommy Aaron was my one of my coaches, the brother Hank Aaron. And, you know, he had a great uh, 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 great natural relationship with all of the players. Wonderful attitude. He took life in stride. Those are the kind of people I really like where you can talk to about something other than baseball. We talked about a lot of things other than baseball. You know what I'm saying? And we laugh, which is important. I don't see enough coaches laughing anymore. Everything is so tight, uh, like they have a tight pair of underwear on. You know what I'm saying? And to me, that's not funny. I, I agree with you. Um, you know, I grew up around it and I just, I think about the camaraderie that my dad had with the guys that he coached with, but also the guys that he coached again, you know, and, and that's where money has changed things too on the coaching side is, you know, guys are making so much more money now. I don't think you see that same camaraderie um, that you used to in, in, you know, back in the past. That's right. That's one more guy. As a player, I looked up to, not necessarily when I was coaching, is the president at Grandville, Ralph Jones. Now, he was a guy that was more than just in the, again, he was a Tommy Lasada. He was always talking to his players in the dugout, and he was making, having fun. And people told me some great stories about how he had things done. One more thing I want to mention about uh, Dr. Jones. When Gremlin was winning so much and they would go to these NEIA tournaments, he knowing that these are black kids had never been in these type of situation they were about to be in. And he made special arrangement to have ladies come in, have them sit at a dinner table. They wear a suit and tie and they sit at the dinner table and they have to learn the etiquacies on how you should act and eat and do things. I mean, to me, how many coaches does that kind of stuff? They ain't thinking about that. But he did it because he recognized his players needed that type of education to put them in a situation where they would not embarrass themselves. I, I think we need it now as much as we did back then. You know, you, you think about how many, and, and I have young kids, they're not young anymore, but 17 and 15, you think about how much time they're on their phone or on the computer. They need help with their social skills. That's right, the social skill. I mean, you, you all, I was telling someone, I, I, I go to Panama, and that's when I'm there, the people, we eat at a dinner table. I said, you know, since my wife died, I, didn't, hey, I had not eaten at a damn dinner table. You know, and people take it for granted, but just think about it. We... I remember we when I would come from work and my son, my, we would sit at the dinner table and talk actually our son, how was school today? What was going on? Anything interesting happened? You know, we always did that first. Then we weren't talking about my day about a, as a coach, but we wanted to find out the kid who was going to try to make his way through life, how things, how he was dealing with it. You see what I'm saying? So those are the things I miss because you learn a lot at that dinner table. 
I, I talked to my mom the other day. I think some of the things that this generation of kids misses as well is as you were raised by other people's parents as well. You're at you're at a buddy's house. You're here and you're around some adults. I, I think we have a disconnect with the younger generation right now because they don't get as much interaction with with older people as as they did back then. And I had so much respect for my friends' parents because I was around them a lot. I don't think we see as much as that now. That's right. And they were going to see to you that you did things right. That's the other thing, you know. And and I I say that all the time. It really takes a neighborhood to raise a kid or a village. For sure. He's a kid. And that village or neighborhood is not for us now. We don't have those people in that neighborhood anymore. Who are willing to trust that kid with anybody in the neighborhood nowadays? Exactly. Oh, it's too difficult to do that. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. So, and then with this virus that hit us, I know how difficult it made it for parents because kids couldn't go to school. Parents have to work. They have to work. So now you're throwing your kid up to something else that's going to raise them. And that's terrible. We don't give the teachers enough credit for the wonderful job they do because they protect our kids. They teach them and protect them. For sure. You know, you started out coaching basketball there. What did you bring to the baseball field that you learned from basketball? And my dad loved basketball. If you ask my dad who coached for 30 years in baseball, he wanted to be a basketball coach. So what did you bring from coaching basketball onto the baseball field? Well, first you need to be in condition. Baseball players usually are not that much in condition. But you know, you learn that. But you learn the value of teamwork. Having a good team, teammate, and teamwork together. See, people don't understand how much it works in baseball. That they look at it as an individual thing that you do everything individual. There is no aiding and baiting like in basketball. You can pick for someone, you make a pass, you know, all of those things. But in baseball, you have to catch that ball along, throw it along, but you still need a teammate beside you encouraging you. And that's the thing that you really need in baseball. And every now and then, you know, baseball allows you to think you can, someone, if it's next to you, you can talk to you about making adjustments. Hey, man, you, you got to work, do your footwork a little better. Hey, man, how about your swing? You dipped a little, you know, glide into the ball, those kind of things. Or the pitcher, hey, man, you got to drop and drive. You know, those kind of things exist that are really good uh team skills that you want to pass along. What were your biggest adjustments going from uh, assistant coach to head coach? Biggest adjustment? Well, now you're making all the decisions. You made no bad decision as an assistant coach. They were all good. You saw all the mistakes the head coach made, you know, so, but now you have to, and I remember when I, when I took over the job, the athletic director, Dick Hill hired me and, uh, he was sitting in my living room talking to me and my wife, and he said, the thing about you being a baseball head coach is now you can get to run your own program. You make your own decision. And that stuck with me because even though I knew it, sometime until you hear it, it doesn't resonate. You got that? But once I heard it, it made sense because now I could go out and recruit and do recruit the kind of players I had without having to explain to the head coach how valuable the kid is. You got me? So, and that's what I did because I had no assistant coach when I first started coaching. I mean, I did everything on my, 
by myself. That was the thing. That was difficult. How many years until you got an assistant coach? 1974 through a real assistant coach, a paid assistant coach, uh, 92. Yeah, you know, you're talking about eight years, seven, eight years. The, the, game, the game has come a long way. You talk about a fight because the athletic director was a football coach and he didn't think I needed one. That's a football guy for you. They don't think baseball needs anything. <laughs> I feel like you put uh, baseball at HBCU schools on the map. Do you feel like that? That's the case. Do you feel like you know when when people think of HBCU schools, you know you're you're the first person that I think of. Do you feel the same way? Well, Southern has a deep history. It became the first HBCU in the first school in the state of Louisiana to win a national championship in the sport of baseball. People think LSU did, but it was Southern in 1959. So Southern was sort of always on the map because of Lou Brock, Lee B.B. Richards, uh, Danny Goodwin, the first player taken in the draft. So we had some history there. It's just that it went away for about a decade until I came back to coach and I brought back uh, a different image, a different uh, personification. I, what I did, I made a historical black school relevant because I went out and got good players. I taught them how to play the game. And we produced, we beat good teams. We beat the bigger of the bigger boys. Uh, and that's what happened. Once I we did that, Southern became a well-known name. And for running up, 10 to 12 years, we were really at the top of our game. And we did a lot of good things, produced a lot of good players, including Ricky Weiss, a Golden Spice winner. And we beat the LSUs and the you know, uh, Cal State Fullertons, and we beat those kind of teams. You know, speaking of Lou Brock, how much interaction did you have with Lou? Wonderful representative for baseball, just passed away. You know, what were your interactions with Lou Brock like? Well, we had conversations. You know, uh, Lou and I talked. I made it a point to for Lou to remember me playing at Southern. And, and I made it a point that I talked with him as much as possible. I wanted Southern to do more for Lou. That's a disappointment for me. We didn't do enough for the man who did. See, it's never going to change when you become the first. There can never be a first again. He was the first player from a historical black school to be elected into the Hall of Fame, MLB Hall of Fame. See, he was the first player on the first team to win a national championship, being an all-black team. Those are things you can't duplicate and we should have done more and make sure we recognize this gentleman for all his contribution all the thing that lou did that i really loved and I, I commended him for he came from a very tiny little town in north louisiana but he started a scholarship fund for kids from that part of the world and the day the article broke that's a young lady from there who knew me called me and say, you know, Lou, I'm part of that, that person. She saw an article I had written on Facebook. 
She said, yeah, I'm one of the first people Lou gave a scholarship to. He made my life, changed my life. So he was more than a baseball man. He was, he was a people's person. Yeah, I read an interesting story with you. You're at Southern and you go to play the Braves and Dusty Baker. And can you talk about that story with the equipment with Dusty Baker? Well, Dusty and I played with the Braves together. And we had a relationship that spanned it has spanned over 40 some years. And uh, and in 84, August of 84, maybe two days after I accepted the job, my wife and I, I called Dusty and told him my situation, no equipment. I just took a job. He said, listen, Dusty was the hitting coach at, with the job. He said, we'll be in uh, Atlanta. Come on down. We'll get all the equipment you need. My wife and I, we jumped in the car and drive to Atlanta. And I met Dusty. And uh, we go to the stadium. And uh, we went early. He talked to all of the play Giants players. They gave me a bunch of uniform and, uh, equipment. Then we went over to the Brave side which Bill Akers was the equipment manager, and he remembered Dustin and I, you know. And the players jumped in. They gave us uh, all of the equipment, you know. I couldn't really – I was overwhelmed because we ended up having to uh, send him UPS. Uh, he couldn't put it in my car. It was so much equipment. And that's how it got started. And the, the, the story, I, I forgot to ever tell the story – when I wrote my book, I should have put the, the grocery, grocery card to display, show people all of the equipment I had was in the grocery basket. That's, and that was the, if that was ever a disappointing, disappointment in my coaching career, it was at that moment when I opened the door to the office and I saw the card in the middle of the floor. And it, Little did I know, oh, this is all you got. You accepted a job, but you have nothing. Yeah, but that's credit to you. You you built that from nothing, and and that's got to give you pride in the program because you know where it came from, and and now you see where the program's at, and and that's because of all the blood, sweat, and tears that you put into that program. Certainly did. Uh, certainly did a lot of hard work, but. I remember a story by Coach Deese from, I don't want to say, it might have been Big Deese is his name, from San Diego State. Yep, Coach uh, Deese. Yeah, he, I read a story about him when I was short. He was trying to build San Diego State. And I read a story. I, I grew, grew, had an interest. I read the story. And he said what he did, there were a lot of construction work taking place on San Diego State campus. And he said he had a couple of players with trucks. And that night they became Raiders. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think that was very nice, Coach. <laughs> Bless you, Coach. You can't raid that anymore. No, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> it was so funny he said it. But uh, what I did, I went and asked the people who were doing construction. Hey, if you have any scrap, I can use them. I'm trying to do this. And they helped me. And that's... That was the difference, how I did it. I started doing this, building small projects at a time, something that was accomplishable. Because the key is, if you can accomplish something, it builds the courage and your, your, your uh, uh, motivation to do the next one. You know what I'm saying? For sure. And that's how we did it. 
Talk about how you thought about bringing the Urban Baseball Invitational to life. And so it's called the Andre Dawson uh, Classic now. And Andre Dawson was one of my favorite players growing up. Can you talk about why, why you decided to do that and the thought process with it? Well, it wasn't just me. I'm not going to just take the credit. But again, you put me in a room with people who can make decisions. I'm talking to them. And uh, that goes back. To, I never found out until 1994 that I was doing something. A, a guy saw me in the, I always, I got to tell this story because it's a great story. At the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach, Florida. Yep. I used to watch Jackie Gleason growing <laughs> up at the Fountain Blue Hotel. And there in 94, Major League Baseball had their winter meeting there. I told my wife, I said, I got to go. I said, I've always admired the Fountain Blue Hotel. And she shook her head and said, go ahead, please. So I go, I go down, and I'm in the room, the big bar room, and I'm working people, and not even knowing I'm working them. And a guy called me now by the name of Ed Lawrence. He called me on the side. He said, hey, man, listen, my wife and I, we've been watching you. You're good in this room. And I said, what you mean? He said, man, you really work in this room. And he told me about a son of his. He said, Miami and Turtle Thomas is on it. But we, after watching you, we have an interest in you. And I end up signing his son. So that Fountain Blue Hotel made me realize that I could work a room. Now, let me go back to the, uh, in Richmond, Virginia. Five, four, five years later, six years later, probably seven or eight years later, I'm in a, I, I was called to come to a meeting. And Jimmy Lee Solomon, the third ranking man in Major, Major League Baseball at the time was there. And I started talking to him about doing something. And he said, boy, I tell you, he said, you are something, huh? He said, I tell you what, he said, you keep, here's my number. Let's stay in touch and we'll keep talking about this. And I never left my foot off the, off the gas. I kept it on the gas. And finally, one day before game on a Saturday, he called me. He said, I think we got it worked out. He said, we got this. We're going to do an urban invitation. We're going to, to uh, Compton, California. We're going to play over there. We'll take two historical black school and play two, two traditional white school. He said, we got ESPN. And it really worked out. He said, the other thing is, you got to bring that band. You got to get that band. I said, it's a done deal. That's the easy part. And uh, so that's how that happened. I just talked Jimmy Lee down, talk him down. At the same time, I'm talking him up to do something that is really unique. And we finally made it happen. You know, you talked about Ricky Weeks. How special was he? Did you know, I mean, I, I saw Ricky in high school on a uh, great player. Did you know when you had him that he was going to play as well as he did at the big league level? Well, let me just say this. Uh, I give credit to one of my former players who ended up becoming one of my assistant coaches, and then he became a scout with Cincinnati, Jerry Flowers. And he was a Midwest scout, but in the early part of the year, they sent him to Snowbird down in Florida. And sometime in February, he called me and said, hey, man, there's this kid, Ricky Weeks, man. Nobody's on him. You need to get on him. He's the real deal. Said, give me his number. Gave me the number. I called him immediately. Talked to his uncle. Uncle gave me the number. Talked with his mother. And then the next night, I was able to talk to Ricky. 
after two conversations with his mother, she committed Ricky to me without even seeing me. And now fast forward, I didn't see Ricky play until I went to see an all-star game in May in Orlando. And uh, I watched Ricky. He was the first player at the park. You like that? Stretching, running, swing. I said, oh, he's the real deal. So I made my way. I was sort of hiding. So I made my way to the stand and his mother saw me. Uh, she had never seen me before, but she started coming down the stand. I knew I was right. I knew I was right. And I said, what you mean, Miss Weeks? She said, just looking at you, I know I made the right decision for my baby. And that's how it happened. And when I saw Ricky take batting practice, I knew I had a good player. The key was finding him a position because they had him hidden in left field, which was a benefit for me because most people can't judge kids in the position they had and maybe see him in another position. Because I said, we're going to make an infield out of you. I said, you're going to be able to play infield. And the rest is history. Last time you and I talked, we talked a little bit about COVID and you being in Panama. Can you talk about that story? You know, COVID hits and you're you're in Panama at the time? Well, yeah. And hit little did I know it was hit because it hadn't became worldwide known. You see what I'm saying? Uh, it was moving and a lot, very few people knew about it. Well, in Panama at the time I was I was there, they had what we have in New Orleans in Mardi Gras, what they call it carnival there. And everybody was coming into the country. For four or five days, I couldn't get out of that doing country. Everything was filled, filled, filled. So a guy, one of the, the, the ladies at the airport told me, sir, if you come back on Tuesday, she said, Everybody will be out of the city, into the interior. Nobody will be coming in. Nobody will be leaving for sure. She said, ain't nobody leaving. She said, you'll be able to get a flight on that day. And she was right. I went. I mean, it was like a ghost town because like in New Orleans, everybody come to the city to enjoy carnival. Over there, they go in the interior, it's called it, outside of the city. And that's where they enjoy their carnival. So I really could have rolled in the middle of the street and nothing would have hit me. <laughs> and because the streets were abandoned. So then I made it to the airport, got the first flight out and I made it and find out once I got home that, that we were in a, we had a virus going on. And to this day, Panama is still locked down, by the way. Really? They have opened up. I spoke with someone there yesterday and they said they had 700 some cases yesterday, which is a lot for them which means they had more than that because it's not developed where whether you can get information like we can here. You take away Panama City and you don't know what's going on with the other part. You're really good at building. And, and what are some actionable things for us to be able to do to, to revive baseball in the inner cities and, and bring baseball back to, to the inner cities? And I talk a lot about that to people in the inner city because they come to me and say, Help us start a baseball program. We want to do this and that. And I said, I want to go to the moon and come back safely. But it's going to take effort for me to do that. The same is here. It's going to take not thinking Major League Baseball is coming and dump a bunch of money. And I said, it's not going to work that way. 
it's going to happen the way it used to be. If we're going to make this happen, grassroots level, people from in the inner city, people in the community, along with the churches and the businesses, putting resources in behind good culture, and we take ownership of the facilities and keep them up. And then we teach the kids. That is how it's done. And I told them I was on the major league commissioner, but Selig Diversity Committee. And that's the way Detroit did it. That's the way Chicago did it. They put money here. But once they empowered those uh, communities, the communities took over. And they kept the programs going because they invested in their own. And that's how it's no different from a really good neighborhood. You have to invest in it to keep it going. I, I think the White Sox are a good example of of how you how you can do it. It took them a while to get it going, but the White Sox are a really good example of of how yeah. you can do something like that and and build something and and sustain it. And uh, just it's amazing to think about how that program started with the ACE program and where it's at now. It's in um, you know it's a wonderful story with the White Sox ACE program. I expect Detroit to get better. Uh, when Dan Drabrowski was with the Tigers, they put a lot of money into it also. And But they, they, they empower. It just takes time. People think it's happened overnight. Let me th- say this. The deterioration of baseball in the inner city didn't happen overnight, okay? Certainly ain't coming back overnight. It took years for them to lose what they had. And it's going to take years to gain back what they lost. Yeah, Kansas City's starting to get it going. You know, Darwin Penny does a great job with Urban Youth Academy. That Urban Youth Academy in Compton is getting going. The Nationals have one going now. So hopefully we can continue to, to build all over the United States with the different youth academies. There are some other cities like in Baltimore, they're doing a good job. In Richmond, Virginia, they're doing a good job. It just takes time because, man, when a structure has been destroyed, I, I look at the, and I don't want to, use the, the Twin Towers in, in New York. Look how long it took them to get that back and money was not even an issue. You got that? It's just when something good is thrown, or thrown down, it just take a while to rebuild it. I'm confident that we're going to do a good job in rebuilding it. But the owners also understand. I have to give the owners some credit. There, when I was with on the, on the committee, they knew that it was going to take maybe 20 to 30 years. They understood that. And they were willing to make that investment in saying that we will wait because the ownership, baseball is going to go international, whether it's going to go more than into Canada. Look for Mexico to come in. I expect uh, 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 somewhere in uh, London, baseball to come in and you wouldn't bet that they're spending all that money in China if they didn't think they they got 1.6 billion people something can happen there Australia Brazil I just think that those are places and it's it's not overnight kind of thing you got me it's over the years so hopefully you and I still be around then baseball will be an international sport talk about growing the game that that's ultimately growing the game when when it touches all parts of the earth not just in the united states yeah it is and uh you know 
I'm a, I, I did side of disclosure. I can't talk about everything, uh, you know, but I really could see it happening. Be tremendous. In my lifetime, but I know it's, it's got a chance to do a lot of good things down the road because baseball ain't going nowhere. We talked a little bit about dual sport athletes and, and helping with scholarship standpoint. You know, is that one of the maybe things that's holding kids back now uh, where football and basketball is drawing more kids because they do know that there's more scholarship money available than in baseball? Uh, well, you have, you have to add it into the equation simply because it's, it's real when you come to African-American kids because lack of finance. Yes, for sure. So, it's a part of the equation to talk about. But the biggest thing is that I think what's going, we're going to end up having more things is that as we keep having all these big injuries in football, I just think that there will be some smart parents who, who have that superstar kid. They're going to say, maybe no, I want a healthy little Johnny. You got me, maybe let Johnny play baseball, let him play uh, basketball. Football, maybe not, you know. Football is the one, but basketball hurts baseball just as much because just think of the five, eight to six, two kids who are never going to make it in basketball that could be playing baseball who are really good athletes. And I had a discussion with some basketball coaches at a clinic here in Baton Rouge. And I told them how big a disservice, disservice they were doing their kids when they didn't let them play baseball. They didn't understand where I was going. I said, let me tell you what, you all coach a profession that only gonna have 32 jobs every year. Why would you want a kid to go in a profession where it's only 32 jobs? What are you talking about? I said, in the NBA, it's only 32 jobs a year. Why would you want a kid to go there? The room was shocked because they couldn't have, they never could have fathomed that that's what was happening. It's only 32 jobs a year, only 32 guaranteed contracts. And so I said, in baseball, you got the world is, the, is at your fingertip. If they want to play baseball, it gives them many more opportunities to improve, get better, and come to the big leagues. There's more opportunity there for kids who want to go in the sport. So in order to be able to tell people something, you have to bring facts to the table. That is join, bucket of cold water in your face to make them understand something just took place that they had no idea of knowing about. Not many people think about that. So, you know, my experience being a guest speaker, a motivational speaker to people, helped me to think about a lot of things that you got to help people to realize that they're not even thinking about. We're in a pivotal time right now in sports and also in society. Are we better right now in 2020 than we were in 1968? <laughs> you're asking me that, huh? I, <laughs> I, you, you've seen, you've seen all sides of it. I think you're, you're as good a person to ask as anybody, you know, are we better right now in 2020 than we were in 1968? In some aspects of life, we're a lot better. I mean, with the technology stuff that's available, we got more information. We, we have information that we didn't have in 68. In 68, 
we were more inclusive, closer, and still very distant in some aspects. But things were uh, was moving a lot slower. We didn't have the wealth of the world. The world was still far apart. But now the world is right here because of technology has brought the world into intertwined with each other and everybody knew what everybody else is doing. You know, in 68, I didn't even know where Thailand was or, you know, I heard of Brazil, but I didn't know as much about it, you know. Uh, and little did I know Peru and Southern California is the same. Big, I wouldn't have known that. They both sit on the Pacific Ocean, one on their own different side of the Pacific Ocean, and they have the same terrain. It's the same country, just that one is on the west side, one is on the east side. So those are the kind of things I wouldn't have known in 68. In 68, I had never left the little area I lived in. I hadn't gone venture more than 100 miles outside of that area. So when you start talking about things are different, Hell yes, they are. And the key is, I see the good rather than the bad. <clears throat> I had to mention some bad, but I usually look at the good. I'm with you. I, I, I'm with you. I, I, I always try to find the good in people and, and the good in, in situations. I'm on the exact same page as, as you with that. What does being inducted into the ABCA Hall of Fame mean to you? Well, it tells me I've done a lot of good things good, but more than anything, it told me that I had good players and I met the challenges out there because to be an ABCA Hall of Fame, you have to meet a lot of challenges and you have to meet them head on. And in the life world I lived in, it was, a, it was every year and not having all of the necessities. You know, I'm using... A, my man's uh, uh, used to be with the Dodgers. Our companions, the necessities. I, did, we, I grew up where we didn't have the necessities. You got me? But because it's a great country and I was able to work through it and not bitch and grind, we had the necessities to be successful and, and propel me into being an ABCA Hall of Famer. That is the highest honor one can have after giving 33 years of their life coaching young people who not a lot of people had a lot of faith in but I did. What are some of your best memories of, of coaching at Southern? Uh, I mean, you've got to have a ton. You built, you built it from nothing. You had no equipment. What are some of your best memories? Well, I, I should have listened to my wife and she said, when I first started building that baseball field, I should have had taken pictures before and after. And I'm sorry, that was, that's a disappointing memory because I di didn't do it because it was nothing. And it's a beautiful situation now. Uh, well, you know, one, another beautiful memory was in around 2000, 1985, uh, 89, February, March, 87, we in a meeting the chancellor's office brought all the coaches in. Big powwow meeting. And I'm sitting in there and, and they talking about what is going to happen and what is not going to happen. 
And the only white coach in there, a guy who coached football, said, listen, man, we've got a really good baseball program. They're doing good things. Why don't they get a feel? And the chancellor said, let me tell you something. There will never be baseball played on this campus. Never going to be baseball played on this campus. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and I just smiled. I just smiled. Let's fast forward to May of 87. We playing Cal State Fullerton in New Orleans. Big stage. First time on this big stage in college. And we go out and we beat them one nothing. Big, big win, big win. So fast forward Monday, I come back to the university. First thing I did, I got, because I've been trying to get the National Guard to help me. I had no money, so I needed free work, free labor. They say, if you get this paper signed, we'll help you. I take the papers to the chancellor and say, Mr. Chancellor, would you kindly sign these papers for me? Without even looking up me and congratulating me, he signed the paper and I said, that's a wonderful job, Mr. Chancellor, thank you. Left the office and uh, took it to the National Guard and we began work on the field. That was huge because I had worked so hard for two years and couldn't get to first base, you got me? So once we got that done, the other thing was I needed a few pri uh, private dollars because the state wasn't going to do it. And I went and talked with the mayor in Baton Rouge. And he decided he was going to work with me. And we raised like $300,000, $400,000 to help get this thing done. And so we started the project and got it done. And then the private sectors just jumped on board. That's how I build the baseball field. Uh, so that's uh, that was a big moment again, because I had no money. How was I going to get this done? And I met good people. So I had a lot of good memories. I also had some that weren't good, but I don't want to talk about them because it only bring back bad memories, you know. How did getting a stadium built then change the program? Well, I feel bad for all the kids. I promise that we would have it. <laughs> I told a lot of kids we were going to have it. Hey, you're not the first coach that's promised recruits, facilities, and that. that That's still going on, and I'm sure that was going on in the 1950s where coaches were promising facilities. Like it, it, That's just part of coaching because you have a vision. Doesn't mean it. And, and your vision was true. Like it just took you probably a little bit longer than, than what you thought to get the stadium built. You weren't, you weren't lying. It just took a little longer than, than what you thought. I wasn't lying. I told, <laughs> I told the truth. And, uh, and I did tell the kid, you know, everybody said, man, we're going to get it. It's just going to take a little longer. We're going to get it. And, you know, some of the kids who come back and say, you were right, coach. It was late, but you got it built. I said, I've been trying. It's just a bureaucracy. Yep. You know, it's not like you had a private school. You got the state. You got bureaucracy. You got people don't want me to have this and that. So it's a lot of stumbling blocks. Uh, and But I got it done. And so, you know, it changed the program for people like Carrick more than me. Now, because I only had the clubhouse two or three years. In, in before I retired. And I had that money a long time. So Kerry stands to benefit from that because now all he's got to do is recruit, you know? 
you know, obviously we tried to do some other things to help him with batting cages. Uh, so once we get that, it'll put him in the, the top uh, facility program among HBCUs. But that that's part of building a legacy. And, you know, that's got to make you proud. You know where it came from and, and to see where it is now. You built a legacy there. And um, when anybody thinks of Southern's program, they think of Roger Kador. Well, yeah. And, you know, I have to be careful not to put myself and build myself too high because there are a lot of people who who stepped in the way from me. Took a bullet. Michael Cohen, not you. They actually took a bullet from me. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and they helped. You know, they took that bullet. They went. It's just like all the years we had the fundraiser with Major League Baseball. I can't explain. I can't explain how how I made this happen, but it happened every year. It was successful every year with no help. But you know, it's your energy level. You still have it. You know, um, there, there's some 18 year old out there right now who doesn't have your energy level, and and they need it. Like it's infectious. Your energy level is infectious. I'm telling you, I, you know, <coughs> my players. <coughs> excuse me a little. My players uh, love me because. We had, I made things so easy for them. We only practiced in our way to have it. You know, if they had a class, they were free to go. It was such a beautiful thing. And if I said something to a kid, my a young kid in my older class, the upper class would jump in and say, hey man, don't pay coach anymore. He does this for everybody. They, they could say, don't take play man in mind. He does it to everybody. See, when kids understand who you are and they can come in and defend you and even in defending me, they didn't elevate me to beyond. They made sure that the kid understood. He does it to everyone. So he's not picking on you. You got me? So those are the kind of things. And I, I really had fun coaching. I, I tell you, the sportscasters love me. And my thing is, uh, God used to say, Coach, you act like one of the doing adolescents you know, I said I feel that way I feel that way and that's I had fun coaching I'm telling you I had a lot of fun coaching do you, do you feel like that's one of the biggest keys to coaching is letting kids see who you are having that enthusiasm and, and really letting kids see who you are as a person they need to see it they need to see it because kids are different today remember I'm older than you and I grew up in the area where players when you were on a team you couldn't even literally talk to the coach you got me today you got to make sure your office is open all the time i had to make sure i talked to kids they wanted to talk you know and we talked about a lot of things of other than baseball you know what i'm saying so no i made myself available uh and uh like i said you know if i got on a kid too hard and he came in i said man it ain't personal don't take it personal <clears throat> I said, you ever see me fuss at my son? I fuss at him. Come on, you all right? If I didn't love you, I wouldn't say a word to you. Then you really would have problems. And they feel better because their ego got bruised and I used the right side, soap or grease or oil to rub it. And uh, they are a lot better once they leave my office. 
What are some final thoughts you have, Coach Kador? Say it again. You have any final thoughts? Life has been good. See, life has really been good for a kid who grew up. Not first being able to speak well, walk, talk, uh, couldn't read, couldn't write. I mean, and then I'm able to stay the course, understood that when kids laughed at me in school, they were laughing because it was true. See, most people can't take that. They, they, I said, they are true. They are, they're telling the truth because I haven't been able. I was denied the opportunity. You see, I was denied the opportunity to go to school and learn the foundation. You got me? So I understood that, but it didn't stop me. And I kept pushing, pushing and pushing. And I made it through high school and I made it through college with two degrees. And the rest is history because I never stopped understanding that life is good. How did you keep going? I mean, is that part of it, knowing that life's good? You know, I think of Victor Frankl's uh, Man's Search for Meeting. You know, those early days when it was hard for you, how did you keep going? I understood only because I understood that it wasn't my, all of my fault. That if I, you know, all I had, the, the only hope is, let me tell you what, how did I keep going? I didn't want to go back to where I came from. That's the number one thing. Never. And the drive and determination. But the Jehovah God was the one holding my hand and leading me, making the road smoother as we walk every day. You see? And I understood it. I had no social life when I was in college. Because once I got off the practice field, I went to eat, shower, study, sleep. That was my life. I did it whatever, you know, and and until I was a senior, no social life. It was sort of like uh, Branch Rickey telling Jackie Robinson, he couldn't fight back for two years. Well, I couldn't go do what the other kids were doing because they felt they were more versed than me. And I knew I had to shower, study, get my rest and do it, start the process. It was a simple process over and over again. Perfect. You know? Well, Coach Cador, thank you very much for for jumping on with me. This was awesome. So um, thank you again. And congratulations uh, from all of us here. Hall of Famer. Uh, it's tremendous. You did a good job. You <laughs> handled me well. You're good. You've done this before. <laughs> I still feel like a baby. I just got started, I, but I know baseball, you know, that, that's the, that's yeah. the difference. I know baseball and I think I know people. I've been around people a long time and I was, I was excited about getting the interview. I'm glad you, you okayed it. And yeah, this well, is, yes, I didn't want to be like a lot of guys and come in and be stiff, stiff neck on you. You got to, yes. you got to loosen it up a little. You got to make it real. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And uh, so I'm going to tell you a story that Buck O'Neill said once. I met Buck O'Neill when I was playing independent ball for the Evansville Otters. He came and, and talked to us with the oh. Otters. Yep. Okay. Well, he said he and uh, the pitcher, uh, Satchel Page, they couldn't check in the hotel early. So they said, let's go to the place where they had the slave trade in, in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, so they were over there. And he, uh, and Buck O'Neill had a private moment. I mean, uh, Satchel Page had a private moment. And he said, called Buck O'Neill Nancy. He said, Nancy, feel like I've been here before. And Buck said, you know, at that moment he realized the spiritual feeling that Satchel had could have been some of his ancestors 
were there. They could have been traded in that market. And that's what he was feeling. So that's why I meant when I feel, say, feel like you've been there before. Yep. You've done this before. It's just like, you know, you're good at it because you've been there before. Thank you very much. I look forward to meeting you in person. And uh, hopefully you know, before Chicago in 2022, hopefully we, we meet before that. Hopefully it's baseball field this spring somewhere. Well, I'm, I hope to be moving around more. I, I was telling, you know, I have asthma, so I, my doctor is telling me to stay in as much as possible. Man, this is killing me because prior to this, I was very active. I was traveling. I was doing a lot of community service. Yep. And all of that went away for six months. This is not good. So, so I'll make it happen. Well, be safe and tell Carrick I said, hey, when you see him. All right. Take care. All right. Thanks, Roger. Bye. Coach Kador has an infectious energy. You can see why he built a successful program and has made a lasting impact on baseball at all levels. He has a huge personality. He's a great example of not using your circumstances to make excuses as to why you aren't successful. We have so many living legends in the game involved with the ABCA. Huge show of gratitude for Coach Kador recording with me. This is another reason why I feel like it is the best time to be a coach. We have so much new technology and also so many great resources of coaches who have had successful careers. Thanks again to John Litchfield, Zach Hale, and Matt West in the ABCA office for all their help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email rbrownlee at abca.org, Twitter at CoachB underscore ABCA, Instagram at ryanbrownlee17, or direct message me via the MyABCA app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks and leave it better for those behind you.